Sometimes the story of a cloth hangs by a thread, or in this case, a thread, a chance, and a coincidence, all bundled together. The tale in this episode is one that has never been properly told since it began more than 80 years ago, and it has come close to sinking out of sight completely. It's about an astonishing operation by the women and children of Canada to provide help, comfort and consolation to thousands of men, women and children in Britain and Europe in desperate circumstances during and after the Second World War. It deserves to be remembered and honoured, but instead it has been forgotten, even in Canada just as the very last survivors of the generation who took part in it are leaving us. Sometimes I think we're so close to our history that we don't really see the importance of it until we get a little farther away. And then suddenly we look back and go, oh, we never really talked about this. We never learned from this. We never made a record of this. And it's too late now because the women who participated are gone and their journals are... They, their journals, the quilts in a sense are their journals. The quilts are the only items left from the things that they made that are still in existence. The bandages are gone and the sheets are gone and the socks are gone. But there are two or three hundred surviving quilts in, in Canada and Britain and Europe. They tell the story. And I think it's really important that that story be recorded. That is Joanna Domenjian, and we'll be hearing more from her in this episode. In fact, it couldn't have been made without her. Welcome back to the third series of Haptic and Hughes' Tales of Textiles, which is called The Chatter of Cloth. My name is Jo Andrews, and I'm a hand weaver interested in how textiles speak to us and in trying to unravel the meaning they hold in our lives. My part in this story started 30 years ago, one cold winter's morning when I was helping my mother collect blankets to send to the Kurds in Iraq. They had fled into the freezing mountains to escape Saddam Hussein's murderous army. Blankets was the least we could do for them. At the end of the morning, we sorted through the donations and found a quilt an old handmade quilt with a striped cotton backing. It had a handwritten label that said WVS Winona Circle Grace United Church Gananoque, Ontario, Canada. The fabrics that made up the front of the quilt were 20th century, probably to our inexpert eye from the 1930s and 40s. I have no idea to this day if we did the right thing, but we made a donation to the Kurdish Relief Fund and kept the quilt. We never saw who gave it in, and we will never know what their motivation was in doing so. The quilt is a joyful thing and very much of its time. It was made from what looks like dress fabrics shaped into different square blocks any which way so that no piece of fabric was wasted. It was then hand quilted with blue thread 
and a pink and blue backing fitted to it. It was made for a single bed, and even though it's composed of many materials, it works. It looks as though it belongs to a single piece. For many years, we could find out absolutely nothing about it. It was a puzzle. My mother tried ringing the Grace United Church in Gananoque. They told us that they knew nothing about a quilt and nothing about the Winona Circle. And then in 2010, the Victoria and Albert Museum held its memorable quilt show. In amongst all the grand and the great quilts was a much humbler one with a label that said, Bed cover, maker unknown, Canada. It continued, this quilt was made by the Canadian Red Cross Society as part of its initiative to provide relief for civilian victims of the Second World War. It was clearly a relative of our quilt, so now we had an idea that ours was a Canadian wartime quilt. More years passed, and then late last year, I got an email out of the blue from Joanna Domenjian in Canada, asking to be considered for one of the free gifts that Haptic and Hugh gives away with each episode to subscribers to the newsletter. Joanna signed her email with the strap line, Researching Canadian World War II Red Cross Quilts. And guess what her postal address said? Gananoque. I couldn't believe my eyes. Joanna had started researching Canadian Red Cross quilts while working on her master's degree, looking into women's practice of stitching for leisure. So my supervisor asked me to find one uh, artifact that I could center my research around uh, in order to talk about this. And somehow on the internet, I found a Red Cross quilt. It popped up, I think, on my Pinterest feed. And um, I read a little bit about it on the Red Cross website, uh, the Canadian Red Cross website. And I was really intrigued by this little label. The description said that these quilts were made um, by women in Canada during World War II. So I just started to look for more information about them. And I was just I was so surprised I couldn't find any. I, there were brief mentions in, in Canadian quilt books, um, but not in journals. So I talked to the librarians and you know went through what I was looking for. And, and she, uh, she agreed with me just as she did sort of some precursor research. She couldn't find anything written about these quilts either. So uh, it, I chose this as my topic because uh, I was very interested in getting this story told and getting an understanding of what the story really was. What Joanna uncovered astonished her. During the Second World War, 55 million items went from Canada to Britain. These items were called comforts, and most of them were made by the women and children of Canada. There's a long list of items that they made. Uh, they were they were sewing for uh, the hospitals. Uh, they made sheets and bandages and pajamas and slippers and robes. They even made cloth face masks for surgeons. 
women were also asked to sew clothing for the people of Britain who had lost their homes in the bombing. The Red Cross supplied patterns for sewing jumpers and skirts and all kinds of different basic items that people would need. We, I even found an article, this was so sweet, that they were uh, the Red Cross asked that women not use very bright colors in the clothing that they were sewing for the people of Britain because the people of Britain didn't quite like them to be so, um, so bright. Isn't that cute? Amongst this multitude of items were more than 400,000 quilts which were handmade by the women and children of Canada. This seems to have been suggested by the Canadians themselves, and it looks as though they wrote to Queen Elizabeth, later the Queen Mother, to ask her permission to send the quilts. Permission was granted, and every conceivable organisation across Canada got involved. What I have found is that they were made by groups of women um, but many different kinds of women's groups so in Canada there's the women's institutes which is primarily a rural based community group the imperial order of the daughters of the empire is another group of that time that was very popular and very active but they were also being made in churches and in Jewish synagogues they were being made in homes um, they were being made in um, Red Cross workrooms. There were some Red Cross workrooms before the war, but during the war they increased exponentially and um, they would be formed in libraries and other community buildings where women could meet regularly. I even found a Red Cross workroom at Queen's University in the very building where I was taking some of my courses. Um, there had been a Red Cross workroom uh, female students were making uh, quilt blocks um, in uh, the 19, around 1942-43. There's a picture in one of the yearbooks of um, young female students working on quilt blocks. And there are pictures too of school children working on quilts in remote rural schools in Canada. Every quilt was different and each quilting group found its own materials although later the Red Cross supplied the batting and the backing cloth. Joanna has done a quick calculation of the time that went into making the quilts. I ran some rough numbers to say that even if a quilt is constructed by machine, so if the quilt top is made by machine, but then the quilting is done by hand, there's still about 50 hours that would be invested in making a quilt, 50 hours, women hours of work to complete a quilt. The women made over 400,000 quilts in a six year period. 20 million women hours of work at minimum just to make quilts. Most of the women who were involved in this effort have long since left us. In Canada, the time, skill and craft they put into this work has been almost forgotten but not quite. In 1942, Phyllis Van Horn was a young bride. She'd just moved with her new husband to Wooler near Trenton in Ontario. Her husband worked at the Air Force Base there 
and she found herself with time on her hands until the local church group found out that she could sew. Phyllis is now close to a hundred, but her recollection of those years is clear. Joanna went to speak to her at her home for Haptic and Hugh. Well, I just remembered how we used to spend the days quilting and there'd be you know, the neighbor women of the neighborhood, three or four women would get together and quilt for the afternoon. There was no fancy quilting about it. It was all plain, straight going. You would be maybe two hours every afternoon or early evening, depending on how much daylight there was because there was no lights at that time, no electricity. I had no family and it was a good way to get acquainted with the other women. And I had a big living room and they used to, the women would set the quilt up in my, in my living room. Phyllis still has all the old quilting frames from her mother, her grandmothers and her neighbours stored above her kitchen. Every one of them is slightly different. In the war, the quilters would often source offcuts from local shirt and pyjama factories and from suiting and military uniform factories and make them into patchwork blocks, carefully making use of every single scrap. You know, I thought it was an obligation. Might as well, why sit doing nothing? You might as well be quilting. That was your war effort. Everybody did what they could. It was the only sociable thing there was. They weren't having afternoon teas or anything like that. Busy making use of every second. To begin with, Phyllis says she wasn't very good at hand quilting, but she quickly became skilled at doing it deftly and evenly. And at the same time as being a communal activity, it was also a good way of deflecting anxiety. Well, I was always scared that my husband was going to be posted overseas. I mean, that was the first thing you thought of, you know. Airmen, there was airmen everywhere, you know, because we lived in Willer and Trenton was the main airport. Lots of airplanes all day long. And that sense of anxiety and unease seems to have hung over many Canadians during a war in which so many of them were directly involved. Phyllis herself likened it to the sense of anxiety she felt at the start of the COVID epidemic. Joanna believes that quite apart from meeting the needs of the people at war in Europe, the quilters themselves also benefited from their work. Well, I think there are, there are two different things that I'm looking at is the women, um, th there was a benefit to the women individually and there was a benefit to the women in the group setting. So um, we know that stitching by hand uh, is a repetitive um, and can be very meditative activity, which is soothing to our spirits. Um, but I believe that the uh, gathering together in the community, meeting together, um, provided another layer, another element to this where women could meet with each other, uh, talk about their week, talk about um, what was going on, share tips, help each other uh, learn stitching. We, we, we see in some of the quilts the stitching isn't done very well, but there weren't sort of judges saying how many stitches per inch. 
my sense is that the gathering together um, would have been um, encouraging. Phyllis told me that she uh, enjoyed meeting um, once or twice a week with this group of women who were sewing because it gave her something to look forward to and a time to be together. The quilts and all the other comforts went to the Canadian Red Cross, who bundled them up and sent them largely to Britain, where they were distributed mainly by the Women's Voluntary Service and the Women's Institutes. And that's another story that hasn't been properly told. They went to people in need, people like Jan Hassard, who was a six-month-old baby when she was bombed out of her house in Purley, south of London. So we lived in a typical semi-detached suburban road, okay, 13 miles from London. And they heard the bomb coming over. So it was half past six in the morning, everybody was in bed, but I was in the front room. So therefore, I, my cot was under a window. So my mother rushed in, took me out of the cot, took me into the back bedroom with her. Um, and the window shattered when the bomb dropped, obviously, and fell into my cot. So that was a very lucky escape. But they didn't have time to get downstairs because you had two. I don't know if you know about flying bombs, but you had two minutes. So what happened is the bomb came over. They heard it. They must have been woken up. They heard it coming. The engine cut out. They knew it was near, but they didn't know, obviously, where it was going. Nobody knew where it was going to fall. They didn't have time to go downstairs because they didn't have a, um, a shelter. So they used to go under the stairs. <laughs> Sounds a bit bizarre, but it, that was what you did. So she was in bed and I know the wardrobe fell on her and she sort of put me underneath her. I mean, this is all a bit personal, but I am trying to give you a picture of, of what I understand happened. But obviously she wasn't badly injured. But the bomb fell across the road. So you imagine a suburban road with all these semi-detached houses and a hotel across, literally across the road, slightly to one side. So we were taken to a centre at a church called St Barnabas. So there was obviously a special centre there that people were taken to when they were bombed out. And that is where we were issued with the quilts it sounds a strange thing to happen they must have been given other things because they'd had to leave their house I don't really know but all I know is that we could not go back to the house because it was bombed out Jan and her family went back to the house in Purley after it had been repaired when the war was over she remembers the bomb site across the road was dangerous and spooky and she also remembers that the quilt stayed on her bed. I can't tell you the size, but it was Dresden plate because I can remember lying in bed and obviously the stitching was not brilliant. And I used to pick at these stitches and it was a sort of, I don't know what the wadding was, but it must be some sort of lamb's wool, I think, because I could pull it out and I can remember doing that. <laughs> And it had a cream background, and I would imagine it was dress fabrics because every patch would be different. Every patch would be different, you see. So people, the thing is, it's true patchwork and it's true utility patchwork because people would have cut up their old dresses. For those of us who aren't quilters, a Dresden plate pattern starts with a central circle 
and then has wedges around it to form a plate-like shape. When Jan was 11, her aunt made her a new bedspread. Her room was redecorated and Jan's Dresden plate quilt went to the rag and bone man. One of those people long gone who travelled up and down British streets with a bell shouting, any old rags, any metal. But that's not quite the end of Jan's story because many years later she became an embroiderer and then a quilter. And one day she spotted a Canadian Red Cross quilt at an antique fair. She knew what it was instantly, bought it and started a collection of heritage quilts. Eventually she had eight Red Cross quilts before she sold her collection some years ago. Even today she has a business recreating heritage quilt patterns, so her quilt created an unexpected path for her. Mostly we know the people we make things for and they are an expression of our thought and love for them. One of the things that strikes me here is that the Canadian women and children who made so much never knew who would get what they made or what it meant for them. They weren't able to put an arm round these people and accompany them in their loss and suffering, but they could offer them comfort through the handwork and the fabric that went into these quilts. In 2005, Maxine March was a member of a quilt group in the UK when she heard a talk about the Canadian quilts. When you see one and hold one, its, it's history is still there somehow. And I was touched at the very ordinariness of them. Um, none of them would win a competition in a quilt show. But they were all made clearly with affection. Um, the other thing um, is I realised that it was an aspect of women's work in the war that had just never been acknowledged. And the impact that those quilts made on people had never been recognised outside of the people who actually received them. To the extent that the Canadian women who made them, we found, didn't always realise the impact that these things had. Maxine and two friends set up a Canadian Red Cross quilt research group and a register to collect details of as many quilts as they could find and their location. They also began to collect accounts of who got the quilts and what they meant to them and the stories just spill out of Maxine. You know, there's the refugee family from the Sudetenland who came over to Britain just before the war broke, um, who had, by the end of the war, five children. Um, the fifth one was born just after the war ended, and the mother died within a few weeks. Now, the eldest child, a girl of 14, said to her father that she could cope with the three children below her, but she felt she couldn't take on a newborn baby. So the baby was fostered and after 11 months was adopted. 
handed over at a railway station with a bag containing a change of clothes and a Red Cross quilt, a crib quilt. There's the story of two sisters who shared a bed and had um, had a quilt given to them because their house had been damaged by a bomber. And uh, at night they used to look at the fabrics on the quilts and take it in turns to choose ones that they'd like to have made into a dress. There's Betty who was um, eight years old, living with her mum in the east end of London. Her father was away on active service. The house was bombed and Betty's mother was killed, leaving Betty effectively orphaned. She was sent to an Dr Bernardo's orphanage in North Wales and she described how the girls all slept in one dormitory and on each bed there was a Red Cross quilt and at night they used to look at the designs on the quilts and make up stories about them and she says the stories usually finished with a knight on a horse coming to rescue us. There's a letter in the Junior Red Cross Journal in Canada from a little girl of about 12 who was in an orphanage in Rygate. And she's writing a letter of thanks. She says they had a most exciting day when a great bundle of quilts arrived enough for one each of every child in the orphanage and the way they were distributed was the youngest child was allowed to choose first and so on up through the ages and the little girl writing the letter was the oldest child so she had the one that was left and she says in the letter but it's lovely and i still like it it's interesting that some of the ones that have come to me have come from the next generation down because they know how much, you know, value um, their parents put on these quilts. And even though time passes, the stories still keep coming. Maxine's group has documented the survival of just 250 quilts, most of them in Britain. Some of them are in institutions like the Quilters Guild in York and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Some of them are in private hands. Maxine and the research group never turn away a quilt, and Maxine herself has 56 stored at home. She believes that lots of them didn't survive because they weren't put away for best. They got used and used and used again. Um, but I had a, an email some years ago from a man who um, tells about how his family received quilts during the war. Um, he lived in an area of Devon called Sarkton Sands, which was cleared by the military, completely cleared. Every, everybody moved out, animals moved off the, the land because they used the area for training for D-Day. Um, when the families were allowed to go back into their houses, they found that there was a Red Cross quilt on every bed. And he was a child at the time, but he said all his childhood he slept under his. When he went away to university, he took it with him. When he got married, it was used in his home. His children slept under it. 
until the 1970s when duvets came in, by which time, of course, it was very faded, so it went into the dog basket. And when the dog died, the quilt went to the dump. And I think that's probably what happened to a lot. I mean, I've had one that was rescued from covering up a tractor engine to keep the frost off it. Not all the quilts went to the UK. Maxine has documented quilts that went in the immediate post-war period to the Netherlands, Belgium and France. Maxine also knows that in a separate initiative, the Mennonites sent quilts to Germany, with the thinking that they would send them where they were needed, irrespective of the politics. Maxine would like, in time, to find a good home for her collection of quilts, a home that is able to take care of them properly. If there is a gallery out there, I mean, it would have to be a textile gallery or a gallery that's interested in Canadian history. You know, they're welcome to the whole collection, but I must say I don't hold out any great hopes for that. But if anybody has any suggestions, you know, I'm open to receiving them by all means. Maxine is also quite clear about why these quilts and the other items that were made by women have been so completely overlooked. I think part of that is because it's women's work and women who didn't have any official status during the war. Um, I mean, you have to remember that um, in London, the memorial went up to animals in the war before one went up to women in the war, which kind of sums up the general attitude. And even now in London, the memorial to women in war commemorates those women who put on a uniform. In Canada, there is a single memorial to the women who died in the Canadian Women's Army Corps. There is nothing in either nation to commemorate the millions of women who contributed their textile skills and domestic labour in any crisis. To me, the story of the quilts and the other comforts is part of the fabric of Canada's story as a nation, just as much as maple trees, the Mounties and ice hockey. But at the moment, it's a missing chapter. Here's Joanna. It was as if that anything that was related to domesticity was set aside or tucked away or hidden or not talked about, almost like embarrassing to say, oh, and women sewed. All through the war, women sewed, women knit, women crocheted, women made things all through the war. They were busy. They made 55 million items. We're not talking about that because we want to talk about what women did outside of that that actually helped them move forward into a more balanced role in our society, which we're, of course, still seeking. But somewhere along the way, we've sort of tossed aside that actually some of this making might actually be very good for us and uh, could actually play a role in our lives now. Joanna knows exactly what her grandfather did in World War I. It's all archived and recorded, but her grandmother's record is blank. She looked after five children, ran the family farm, and still made time to gather with her local community to make items for that war. But no one recorded that. The story of these quilts is one with many layers, 
In this episode of Haptic and Hugh, does little more than scrape the surface of what could be told. There will be tales of comfort and resilience, but there will also be darker sides to this, and I hope that one day there will be a full history of these quilts, how they came to be made and the impact they had. The work that Maxine, Jan and Joanna have done has all been painstakingly assembled from primary sources. Many hours spent looking at microfilm in libraries, sorting through old files and digital records, hunting down marginal references strewn like tiny bright beads across the world. It needs now to be gathered up and restored to its proper place as a complete story in its own right, rather than being part of everyone else's tales. At the start of this episode, I said the quilt that my mother and I found 30 years ago had an unusual handwritten label on it. The Canadian Red Cross frowned on quilts being signed. They were supposed to carry an anonymous label that said simply, Gift of the Canadian Red Cross. But happily, sometimes rules got broken. Our quilt said WVS, Winona Circle, Grace United Church, Gananoque, Ontario, Canada. After I told Joanna about it, she managed to find out more about it in a week than I had done in three decades. I researched where um, what the Winona Circle was, and the members of the church helped me to find reference to this in... Um, a history book about the church and the Winona Circle was a missionary auxiliary and it was named for the pastor's daughter Winona Pitcher and this missionary auxiliary met in the evenings and made items for missions starting around 1910 um, so they would have been working through the first world war as well and then also still meeting during the second world war. I also found um, by reading the Gananoque Reporter, which was the community uh, newspaper still in existence, this newspaper was very much a community fixture. And so it was a great resource to um, track the work that was being done. The Gananoque Reporter reported in it um, even what people were doing or making or giving. So it, on the front page, it would say, uh, so-and-so donated this much money, this group donated five pairs of socks, um, and so on. And it would list this every week. So I imagine that this was great encouragement for people to be a little bit competitive and go, oh, look what my neighbor gave. I need to. Let's see what we're going to find and give. I, I, I think it's a, a little bit of fun. I haven't found that in any other community. And, and I think that that would have been a strong encouragement for people to be very active in participating. Joanna also found the grandson of one of the women who had been a member of the Grace United Church during the war. Paul Harding is still a member of the church today. And happily, his grandmother, Annie Scott, was a rule breaker too. She discreetly pinned her name and address to the quilts her group made, and as a result, got some letters written back to her. She kept them, and her grandson has them still. They're lovely to read. A note from Alice Waldron in London in 1942 
says thank you for a knitted rug given to her elderly mother, adding, We lost our house through the raids, and then a second home, and all our things. A typewritten note from Muriel Butterworth, the area organiser of the Women's Voluntary Service in Holmfirth, says, Thank you very much for the beautiful quilt which reached us yesterday. I wish you could have heard our evacuee's delighted cry of, Oh, how lovely, when I took it to her, and she gleefully put it over a government blanket on her bed. I told her from whom it had come, and she said, Fancy thinking of us from so far away as all that. This Mrs. Heal has four children. Her husband is in the RAF overseas. Her house and all her furniture have been completely destroyed. There is even a letter from Clementine Churchill in Mrs. Scott's collection, which begins, I am writing to add my personal thanks to those of every man, woman and child in these islands for the gifts which you have sent to help us. After 30 years of taking care of the quilt that was handed in on that cold winter's day, deciding what to do next wasn't difficult. In early November, we packed it up and sent it back to Gananoque, around 80 years after it had left there for the UK. We thought it was right that the town should have its own history back so that it could be enjoyed where it was made. It's a very small thank you for all that labour that meant so much to people in such desperate circumstances. So on November 11th, uh, the quilt arrived back to Canada in time for our Remembrance Day. And on November the 11th, we held a small ceremony at the public library where the quilt was received back to the community. Uh, the mayor was there and a councillor and uh, members of the library um, and members of the community and the church who had been involved in helping me with the research. The quilt is now in the custody of the Thousand Islands History Museum, which is in Gananoque, and they are working through the process of accessioning the quilt. But it will they're very happy to welcome it into their collection. And um, people have been calling the museum asking to see the quilt already because of the publicity that was received in the newspaper and they're very anxious to see the quilt but it's not available to view at this time. But it will be available soon for this generation of Canadians to see and I hope for many more to come so that they will have a better understanding of the different ways in which people particularly women who are not in uniform, respond to crisis. Joanna is recording the quilts that have been repatriated to Canada, and so far this is only the twelfth quilt that she has found which has come back to Canada. There may be others, but sometimes the extensive lack of knowledge of this astonishing wartime operation means that people simply don't know what they have. Every one of those you heard in this podcast hopes that that is now changing. This episode has been a long time in the making, and it would not have happened without Joanna's determination and research skills. Thank you. You are a true 
champion of the quilts, and they are lucky to have you. Maxine and her research group have done an enormous amount to rescue the quilts from the dog basket of history, just before it was too late. If it wasn't for them, we'd be talking about a handful of quilts, not 250. Jan Hazard and Phyllis Van Horn are remarkable witnesses to events that are rapidly sliding out of known memory. Thank you for sharing them with us. Thanks too to Bill Taylor for editing and producing this episode. The hands that made the Winona quilt have passed on by now, but the quilt remains as their war record and their considerable contribution at a time of great need. It also survives as an example of the ties that connect people in difficult times. I find it remarkable that these women and children cared for individuals suffering and displaced in the Second World War. People they had never known and never would know, but were nonetheless able to console. We should honour them just as much as we honour those who served. And this episode of Haptic and Hugh is dedicated to the millions of nameless women and some men of all nations who have knitted and stitched, sewn and quilted in wartime and crisis to console and comfort those who suffer and work. We should remember them better than we do. If you would like to see any resources relating to this episode, please go to www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen, where you can find pictures, links, and a full script, including information on who to contact if you have a Canadian Red Cross quilt or a story about a quilt. This is the last episode of Haptic and Hugh in this series, The Chatter of Cloth. I hope to be back later in this year with another season of Tales of Textiles, after a break and a chance to think about what stories come next. If you have an idea that you think would make a great episode, send me an email or drop me a message on Instagram. I'm always interested. And if you find me a great poem or a piece of writing about textiles or textile making, let me know. You have no idea how hard these are to find. Thank you, as ever, for listening to these tales. If you'd like to contribute to making Season 4 a reality, feel free to buy me a coffee. It all helps. The Haptic and Hugh Bookshop, which sadly functions only for those in the US and the UK, will remain open and online at all times. And there are some great books there. I look forward to your company for the next season of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. <laughs>